You are running 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 9, A Different Breed of Machine. Hey, this is Remy. The title card this week is The New Identity from What Lies Ahead, Haas Bioroid Stronger Together. It's an identity where all Bioroid ice has plus one strength. It's a 40-20 identity, that's a minimum deck size of 40, and an influence limit of 20. So it's not a very good identity, it doesn't have a very good ability. But that's the uh, flavor text on it, a different breed of machine. And that best fits in to the episode with the AstroScript pilot program segment at the very end, pulled from Worlds of Android. But I've also got an article for the Toolbox section about the structure of Corp decks and an Archived Memories article about evaluating the first turn of the game from the Corp perspective. I had less time this week than usual to uh, prepare the episode, so I pulled in a couple of longer segments from articles that I've been trying to fit in for a bit and haven't been able to really find the right spot for them. So they're going to go in here this week. But we'll be preceding those two long segments by four shorter ones, which includes our first one right now. Precognition, Mind and Mayhem, Week 2. This time around, the big boy has for us four cards pulled for Wayland and Criminal. Two for each. One of those, Each of those is going to be a rebooted card, pulled in, in fact, both cases from the Kitara cycle. That's the last cycle that Fantasy Flight did. And then a new card for each. Let's start with Wayland. The import for, for Reboot Project from Kitara is Armed Intimidation a 4-2 agenda, when you score it, the runner must take 5 meat damage or 3 tags. And that's up from the original, it was 2, so it has been made a little bit better. It's been buffed a bit. 3 tags is the other option. But the new card is Foxtrot. It's a sentry with a res cost of 6 and a strength of 4, also 3 influence. When the runner initiates a run on this server with a run event, flip this ice. It has two subroutines, a trace 4 to give a tag, and a trace 3 to do 2 meat damage. So when that run event is played, it gets flipped over to the other side, which is blockade. This is a barrier with a res uh, res cost of 6 and a strength of 5. It has 3 and the run subroutines. As for the criminal cards, the first, the new one, is Walrus, a two memory unit fractor with an install cost of four and a strength of four. You place two power counters on Walrus when it is installed, and a hosted power counter you can use to break a destroyer or AP subroutine. Otherwise, it's three credits, to break any number of barrier subroutines, it's a fractor, 
and one credit to boost it by one strength. I'm not going to have a whole lot of observation on this, just providing the information. Again, if you want to go in and have discussion about these new cards, well, that's what the Reboot Project Discord server is for. You're welcome in there. The import for the Reboot Project from the Katara cycle is PadTap. It's a resource with an install cost of one, used to be zero, so it actually has been nerfed, and an influence cost of one. The first time the Corp gains credits through a card ability each turn, you may gain one credit. And then it has an ability, click, pay three credits to trash pad tap, but only the Corp can use that ability. Now this is a card that has been banned in the Null Signal game for most of the past three years, and there was some pushback on Discord with people kind of surprised to see PadTap being imported into the game. But here were some of the comments that Big Boy made on why it's okay. He says, the cost change is a huge deal. I think the zero cost was a huge problem. When you nerf econ cards by one, it changes the math a lot. So again, it used to cost zero as a resource. Now it costs one. He goes on to say, at two, it's clearly bad and not worth doing. When I was tracking the money it was making by the end of each game, it was feeling totally reasonable. I think unless you're on Drip Econ or our ETF, you should just not trash it. Like if your Econ is IPO, etc., just let them gain six throughout the game. It's like a super slow daily casts. So one way to see it is if TAP's trash ability was two credits instead of three, it feels much less oppressive. And I think this nerf is actually a bigger nerf than that since it's almost as much worse in the trash case, but way worse in the not trash case. So what he's saying there is, this card seems really strong, but how much is it actually gaining you throughout the game? As he said, maybe six. And if that trash ability would only cost the corp one less, you know, there's the difference in one credit. And so by putting the, the actual additional credit cost on the runner, the install cost is on the runner, that's a bigger nerf because maybe the corp doesn't trash it. And so then the runner is bearing all of the cost. But again, it's interesting, isn't it, how just one credit can make such a big difference in whether a card is worth doing or not. And meanwhile, Cleric, who is really instrumental in taking care of the art and uh, Retechie, the, you know, the websites, uh, made this observation too. For any people who are concerned about this card being too good, he said, we haven't been too proud to control Z entire cards when they prove problematic, should worse come to worst. So, go always do an undo on it. There are your four cards for week two. Week three promises to have the mini-faction cards. Apex was already spoiled on Sunday. I'm recording this on Monday. Go ahead and get in there if you want to hear them. Otherwise, check back here next week. Anonymous tip. Counting cards. A very common agenda suite for a corp is to have 10 
two-point agendas in a 49-card deck. So if you have between 45 and 49 cards, you need to have 20 or 21 agenda points. 20 is better because that means it's going to be harder for the runner to win. 10 two-pointers means you don't have to deal with three-pointers, which can be very hard to score. So again, 10 two-pointers, 10 cards, agenda cards, and a 49-card deck. That means you're having one agenda for each 4.9 cards. So statistically, every time the corp draws five cards, they've drawn one agenda. So if you are not seeing any cards being installed, advanced, right? No agendas going into remotes. If you're running R&D, or maybe you're not running R&D even, but you're not seeing anything. Well, once five cards have been drawn, maybe take another look at HQ because perhaps they have one. That might be five turns if they're just doing the mandatory draw. Or maybe they're using their click ability to draw because they're trying to draw past something. So bearing that in mind can help you to have some idea, just kind of like a rough estimate of how the game is progressing and where you should be focusing your attacks as the runner. So count those cards. Pay attention to what the corp is drawing. Sure Gamble, Parasite. Parasite is a one-memory unit Anarch virus program with an install cost of three in the reboot project and two influence. You install it on a resed piece of ice. That ice has minus one strength for each virus counter on Parasite. If it ever reaches zero strength, it gets trashed, and so does Parasite. When your turn begins, you get to put a virus counter on Parasite. So as the game goes by, let's say you put it on the wall, a wall of static. I don't know why you would do that, but let's say you do. Put it on a wall of static. It gets its first virus counter the next turn. And then three turns down the line, wall of static disappears. Put it on something that costs only one, like ice wall. And it only takes one turn to make it go away. Or if you're Anarch and you're bringing along Data Sucker, just takes one Data Sucker token and you blow up that ice altogether. Or if you're Anarch and you're using fixed strength breakers like Yogg, Yogg will break anything that's three strength for free. Well, so look at something like Victor that costs four. Just get that one Parasite counter on there, and now, boom, Yogg runs right through it. Parasite is a very strong, it's a key part of Anarch's ice interaction suite. But it also, any other faction that has expensive breakers, especially if they cost more than one to boost strength, like right there are some where you have to spend two credits to raise one strength. Well. Parasite's going to be, might be, I mean, it's pretty expensive at install cost of three, but it's only two influence, so there might be situations where that's a useful thing. In fact, as we learned when going through the nerfs to the cards in the core set, a Desperado was specifically 
reduced, specifically nerfed, had its memory unit taken away so that it would be harder for criminal to use those anarch tools. Although I think that case was more data sucker than parasite. But still, parasite is a, a nice way, a simple way to deal with low strength problem ice, especially things that might be traps or you've lost your breakers. If you have deja vu and you have multiple parasites, of course, you can pull back more than one at a time. And then here is something that maybe indicates how long I've been away from the game. I always forget that it takes a memory unit because since it's hosted on the other side of the board, it can be easy to forget that actually that counts against your memory capacity. So you still have only at base four memory units. Parasite takes up one of those, or if you have two out or three, potentially, that's all drawing off of your memory. So bear that in mind. Don't cheat by accident. But Parasite might be just what you're looking for to get through ice in uh, a different kind of way. Data Sucker. We're going to analyze different elements of the game here. We've done this a few different times with the different ice and the icebreakers. I wanted to take a little bit of time and talk about consoles. Now, consoles are a unique type of hardware because you can only have one installed. So each console is unique, but it's also that type of that hardware subtype is unique in that you can't have two consoles installed at the same time. And they're not programs. Programs can be overwritten and removed if you run over your memory limit or whatever. But there's no simple way to get rid of hardware unless you have something like Aesop's Pawn Shop around. Now, the way that's conveyed in the game is the weird text on the card that says, limit one console per player. I, I've always been confused by this. So if you're listening to this and you have a, a really nice explanation for why this is the best way to phrase this, please let me know. Post on the, the Board Game Geek, post on the Discord, send me an email, whatever. But limit one console per player, to me, seems to suggest that you're limited to two because there's two players. And if it means that you as the runner are limited to only one console, then why not just say limit one console in play? It's not like the corp can put a console in play, so... I, were they just worried that that might be something they would do? That the, con, that the court might install consoles? It just doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like an unnecessary way, an odd way to phrase this, but it persists. Limit one console per player. It means you can only have one installed at a time. You can't install the toolbox and Desperado. And there's a reason for that. It's because the consoles can be quite powerful. They're are clear thematic ties to the runners, especially as we get into future expansions, we see even more obviously where the console and the runner are intended to be grouped together. You'll even see some runners wearing their consoles. And so even in the ones that we have at this point in the game's run, there are four total. Three of them came in the core set. One more came in the first data pack. 
Desperado is clearly meant to be Gabe's console, right? It, it fits along with what he's already wanting to do. He's getting two credits for running on HQ. Desperado give you one credit for running. Uh, the, the toolbox is meant to be Kate's console, right? She's just got every answer known to man, and what helps her to have every answer is that extra memory units, the extra link, the extra recurring credits that goes in with her ability, which is basically a recurring credit for installing programs and hardware. And she wants to install a lot of programs. See, they fit together. And they don't really necessarily fit with other runners in different factions. They're really meant to be I don't know. I feel like you very rarely do you see a console from a different faction played by someone. But then you look at Grimoire, and is that tied to noise? Well, the fact that the flavor text on Grimoire is wizard, saying, my little book of magic spells, seems to suggest that it's wizard's console, and yet the ability pairs really well with Noise's ability, the fact that it puts out an extra virus. So uh, maybe that one isn't necessarily tied to a specific runner. And then, of course, in What Lies Ahead, they, Anarch received another console, Spinal Modem, which gives you an extra memory unit, two recurring credits for breakers, but the downside is a successful trace made by the corp will give you brain damage during a run. In some ways, I guess there's some similarities there between Spinal Modem and Cyberfeeder. Cyberfeeder gives you a recurring credit. They both plug into your head. Stimhack also plugs into your head and can get, gives you a brain damage. So there's some thematic synergy, you know, synergy, maybe anti-synergy, between those cards. Anyway, so there's only four consoles at this point in the game, but there are only 20 in the entire reboot project card pool. Now, in the Fantasy Flight uh, Null Signal card pool, there's actually 48 consoles, but still it's not a ton, uh, not a ton of variety. Although, like I've said, you'll often want to have one because they really tend to feed in. There's usually a console as the game develops. The console tends to feed into what you want to do, even here in in the core set. Maybe not so much with Toolbox, it's really expensive. But Desperado, there's probably no reason you don't want that as a criminal. And Grimoire, if you're using viruses, I mean, to me, it seems like a pretty obvious thing. And I see that three-credit cost for Desperado, for Grimoire, and I think that's not very much. But I think that just kind of highlights why I'm not that great at this game, because three credits is a lot. And that's very clear when you look at the cost curve of the, uh, the consoles, especially here in the Reboot Project. It's interesting, if you sort all of the available consoles by cost, uh, let me just read you the number of consoles there are at each cost. Starting with Fantasy Flights, uh, Null Signals, Card Pool. There are none that cost zero, only two that cost one. But you look at cost two, there are 11. There are 10 that cost three. And there are 12 that cost four and seven that cost five. So maybe, and maybe it's just seeing the toolbox 
because it cost nine originally. And thinking, well, like, well, that's a lot for a console. Oh, well, that's three for Grimoire. That's hardly anything at all. And there are a total of five Fantasy Flight null signal consoles that cost seven or more. But now notice the difference here in the reboot card pool. There are actually two that cost zero. Of those that cost one, there are five. Uh, that's more than the two in the Fantasy Flight pool. There are only four that cost two, five that cost three, and then that's basically it. There are none at cost four, none at cost five, none at cost six, and there are four at the high end, seven and above. But even there, they are costs seven, eight, nine, and twelve, whereas in the full card pool, it's eight, eight, nine, eleven, and eighteen for monolith. So the fact that you really have a skewing toward the low end of the scale, where 80% of consoles in the reboot project cost three or less, whereas that's true for less than half of the Fantasy Flight null signal card pool, suggests that there's kind of a general overcosting of consoles in that larger card pool, in the 2.0, 3.0 card pool as opposed to the 2.1 reboot card pool. And the fact that 3 is basically the high end, aside from those four expensive ones, also suggests that 3 credits kind of is a lot for a console and should be thought of as being a lot for a console. Are you getting your 3 credits worth back? Which I guess is even more true if you're looking at the toolbox's 7 credit cost. So I don't really have any other deep insights about consoles than that, although if you have any insights into that, once again, feel free to share with me. Archived Memories Turn 1. Learning About Your Opponent This is an article posted on BoardGameGeek by Jeff Hollis, who we will hear about in the near future for his discussion about work compression. But this article was posted September 1st of 2012, so actually before the game was uh, had wide release. It could be that this information is not exactly uh, what you're looking for. I mean, maybe there's some things about it that aren't right. But I read through it, and I thought it seemed like valid, a valid way of just kind of thinking about what's going on with the game. So I'm going to read through it here. One of the really interesting things about playing ANR is the numerous opportunities you have to gather information about your opponent and how best to calibrate your play against him. The first couple turns are a wealth of knowledge if you know where to look for it. For instance, consider the following scenario and the runner's response to it. On your first turn, you create a remote server, cover it with ice, and then also play an ice in front of your HQ. On the runner's turn, he hits your R&D, draws a card, installs an icebreaker, and then gains a credit. Seems like a pretty reasonable opponent. He's identified an opening, exploited it, 
went fishing for new cards. Remember, he was already at maximum hand size on the first turn. Played an icebreaker. Perhaps it's for the ice. You may or may not be drawing next turn. And then he's picked up some credits. All in all, you haven't learned too much. Now consider the second opponent. He draws a card, installs a breaker, gains a credit, and then runs on R&D. Like the previous runner, he's identified an opening and exploited it, but not as much as he could have. By playing the breaker before he's run on R&D, he's limited the possibility of preparing himself for what you have to play against him. If it's not going to cost or risk you anything, it is far better to wait for more information to play cards than not. The runner has also made himself very vulnerable to surprises like snare, followed by a closed accounts or scorched earth. You can utilize this information in a few ways. If you have HB ice, ideally out of faction, you can probably exploit him with it in the early game and lay it down as if it were a non-HB ice. You might even have an easier time exploiting him with traps. He is not as cognizant of preparation as he could be. If you have cards that function off tags in your deck, you might want to prioritize laying down sentries over code gates and barriers for early crippling plays. How about opponent three? He draws a card, installs a breaker, and gains two credits. Hmm. No run on R&D, despite it being a fresh card and there being no defenses present. This is a person that is more focused on their own position than yours. It could be that this person is completely oblivious, just a very passive player, or they have a deck that has more value in getting infrastructure in place for inevitable agendas that will be on the table rather than fishing for information in R&D. Regardless, this is a person you will probably never want to play traps against. You're likely going to win against the oblivious player anyway. It's unlikely the passive player will run on a remote server without a way of exposing a card unless they are forced to when you're at five or six points. And the third type of player will probably have such a strong engine by the time they start running that traps simply won't phase them. On the plus side, this is also probably an opponent you can aggressively score some early agenda points against. You might even consider laying agendas down behind unrezzed ice you cannot afford. Unrezzed ice your opponent already has an icebreaker for, or unrezzed ice that doesn't even end the run. Note, you would probably only want to try these sorts of plays in early game, and not with a three-point agenda unless you are very confident from prior games about your opponent's dispositions. Let's consider opponent four. Click one, he runs at HQ. Wait, what? There's ice on HQ. Ice on your remote server, but no ice on R&D. So what is this person doing? This is a really interesting play. Also, note that it's pretty safe. There's not a whole lot of ice under cost five 
that can do serious damage to a player with no programs and three actions left. Neural Katana, Datamine, Shadow, Victor, and Enigma are your worst-case scenarios, none of which are really too bad first turn given their res costs and the fact that the Corp has only five credits. There could be a few things going on, and possibly all. He could be indirectly testing if there is an agenda in your remote server, and if you would be able to res its protecting ice if you res your ice on HQ. He could be trying to deny you income for later game exploits. You will probably not want to lay down any agendas in remote servers unless you are certain you'll have the money to fully advance them by next turn. Build larger than normal remote servers and limit yourself to a single fortress for scoring agendas. It may be costly to add extra layers to a remote server, but your opponent will pay more in the long run for having to repeatedly break all the ice, whereas you will only have to pay the initial res and placement costs. He could be trying to fish for information specifically about your defenses, in which case, expect numerous one-of icebreakers and 3x special order. You can expect your ice to become outdated pretty quickly. Like the prior case, you will have to work around this by building up larger-than-normal remote servers. Or it could simply be this person is very aggressive. Don't bother trying ice bluffs, but you may want to be a little more aggressive with traps in light to moderately protected servers. Consider the next opponent. Click 1 he draws, click 2 he runs on HQ. You can be a little more certain that his actions are being dictated by the cards in his hand rather than an overall guiding strategy. For example, my ultimate goal is to deprive you of income. Expect perhaps two account siphons in his deck, but not three. Maybe this is a feint with sneak door beta. He's trying to get you to spend resources on a location he never intends to run against. The dilemma, though, is if you don't res the ice, he probably won't spend resources on sneak door beta. Consider opponent six. Click one, he runs on your remote server rather than HQ. Again, this opponent could be attempting to deny you of resources. His thoughts could be, if my opponent doesn't res the ice, maybe I will trash an Adonis or a pad. Note, though, that both are pretty poor unresed trash options. If you are trashing an unresed pad, you are more or less subjecting yourself to a four-credit closed account that also costs you a click. Not a great play. Better to wait until next turn and see if he reses it. Double note, this is a less awful option if the pad is in hand, Corp has only two or three cards, and the runner can successfully make another run on HQ. Perhaps the runner is aggressively looking for your agendas and trying to put you on the defensive. There are possible merits to doing this over attacking the HQ first, mainly if you as the Corp are playing Wayland and have a higher-than-otherwise chance of running less-than-three-cost ice that can end the run, 
like Ice Wall. Or if you are HB and now have six credits to res two, three cost, and run Ice. But if you are playing Jinteki or NBN, you might want to consider the possibility that this is the type of person you could safely discard agendas against if they have you on the ropes and it would give you some breathing room. That is to say, they may not be fully aware of the subtler game state. Conclusion Android Netrunner is a game where the order of taking actions is perhaps more informative than the actions themselves. If you keep a close eye on what your opponent is doing and try to puzzle through his action sequence, you can pick up a ton of information even in the first turn. As corporation, sometimes you might even want to leave holes in your defense on the first turn or two, just so you can gather this sort of information. Food for thought. The Toolbox. Structure of a Corporation Deck. This article is dated January of 2019, although it was originally in Spanish on the site from earlier in 2017. And in fact, even before that, is referred to as being an updated version of the article. So perhaps it was written in 2015, 2016, and then updated later. The author is Eric Twice, and his website is erictwice.com. And I just think it's interesting to think about numbers when you're putting a deck together, to think about how many of certain cards you want, and thinking about this sort of as a nice and fairly simple way to sort through the probabilities that are inherent in a game like Netrunner. All good decks begin from a good core of cards. No matter how good our ideas are, if we don't have enough money, or too many of our available slots are spent on ice, our deck is doomed to fail. In this article, I'll explain how to build corporation decks that are both solid and functional, with the goal of creating working decks that we can work on later. Why 49 cards? Netrunner allows only three copies of each card, and no matter what the goal of our deck is, some cards will be better than others, so ideally we will have the highest amount possible of good cards compared to not-so-good ones. This means it's best to play the minimum possible number of cards, 45. However, the corporation in Netrunner must also worry about the number of agendas, compared to the overall size of the deck, and we can reduce that number if we increase the card number from 45 to 49 cards. This is a small sacrifice as far as card quality is concerned, but the game is designed for it, and our numbers fit better, so practically everyone plays 49 cards. Magic Numbers Like in all card games, and perhaps because Richard Garfield was a mathematician, there are several key numbers that can help us build a deck in an easy and painless way. 2. First copy with the arrival of the mid-game. Recommended for cards we don't want in multiples, see source. Cards for the mid and late game, 
traps. Ice we don't want two copies of at the same time, Draco. Or that we don't want cluttering our hand at the start of the game, Janus 1.0. 3. Common in the early game, second copy with the mid or late game. Recommended for any card useful in multiples. That is a priority for the runner to trash, Sans San City Grid. Or that are key for the deck's workings. Closed accounts. 5. Assured a copy in the early game. Second copy with the mid-game. Recommended for any cards we want to see often. Like Burst Economy. 3 Hedge Fund. 2 Beanstalk Royalties. Program Destruction. 3 Archer. 2 Roto Turret. Or Upgrades. 3 Ash. 2 Red Herrings. 7. Assured a copy in the early game. Second copy also found in the early game. Recommended for cards we need in our initial hand. Cheap Ice. Or that we often need in multiples. Expensive Ice. 9. Assured two copies in the early game. Third copy also found with the early game. Recommended for economy cards. Cheap ice and expensive ice in decks designed to play them. 11. Assured three copies early in the game. Fourth copy with the mid-game. Recommended for economy cards. With these numbers in mind, one can adjust the values upwards or downwards depending on the level of risk we deem acceptable or the amount of draw in our deck. For example, I recommend playing 8 cheap pieces of ice instead of 7 because I prefer to play it safe during the first turns of the game. But I would rather lower that number to 6 if I play cards like Chum or Norokatana. Structure of a Corporation Deck Most Corporation Decks will look very similar to this. 9, 10, or 11 Agendas 12 plus economy cards, 9 plus for identities that generate credits, 18 ice, approximately, and as many tricks, traps, and other useful cards as remaining slots. Of course, not all decks are built the same. The infamous 6 ice Wayland got me in the Spanish Nationals, and the strange Jinteki personal evolution that plays 14 agendas works much better than it seems at first glance, but they are exceptions, and I find it easier to learn the rules of deck building before breaking them. Agendas Our selection of agendas will determine the needs and advantages of our deck. Generally speaking, the higher the difficulty of scoring an agenda, the higher the number of traps, upgrades, and other deterrents like Scorched Earth we will need, to score from safety, while decks packing smaller agendas will promote a more aggressive playstyle with a higher number of fast advance cards like Biotic Labor or San San City Grid. Ideally, we should approach seven points with our agendas since that's the winning threshold. Two, 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 ten two-point agendas. 
2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-
Any piece of ice that requires other cards to work well can be considered support ice. For example, bioroids and chum are support ice. This kind of ice tends to have a great variety of subroutines and a very high efficiency. Most of them cost the runner more to break than it costs the corporation to res them. This is why the corporation will heavily benefit from playing as many of these pieces of ice they can once they don't need any more ice of the two previous kinds. Tricks, Traps, and Other Useful Cards Don't let this last paragraph fool you. These are the cards that define a deck and that force the runner to play by the corporation's rules. Any card that isn't a piece of ice, an agenda, or an economy card forms part of this category. For example, upgrades, three ash, two red herrings, tag and bag, three scorched earth, two sea source. Kind of an abrupt end of the article, but that is the end of Eric Twice's Structure of a Corporation deck. I particularly liked the way of thinking about those magic numbers in the early part of the article, because it's how many of these do I need if I want to see one? Right? You can't have five or seven or nine copies of a card, but you can have five or seven or nine copies of a particular type of card that you want to see, like you mentioned Burst Economy. Maybe if you have five Burst Economy cards, you're very likely to see one of those in the early game, even if they don't fill exactly the same niche. So I appreciated that perspective. And that brings us here to the closing part of the show. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. I say many because if I try to link all of the cards mentioned in the show notes, um, I run out of space iTunes only allows 4,000 characters in their show notes section. And I learned a few episodes back that uh, it's easy to run up against that limit if you're linking to a lot of uh, retechy DB cards. Music is provided by Alexi Action. The website is netrunner2.1.com, which I actually was trying to create a website last week and uh, in the process of installing some and leaving it there, I kind of busted the feed for a couple of days. Oops. Anyway, right now it's still redirecting to the Reboot Project homepage. You can play online at reteki.fun, but if you want to find people to play with, again, come to the Discord. You can find me there. My name is Auberman. I've got this 2.1 group that you're welcome to join. If you want to see when we play, we have a regular play night. Look in there, check the Board Game Geek thread, or you can email me, anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. In the AstroScript pilot program coming up last week, we began the introduction in the Worlds of Android book. This introduction is quite long. It'll take us quite some time to get through it. That particular article was focused on androids. This week, we focus in particularly on an overview of the bioroid part of that equation. Clones are also considered androids. There are two short articles about Haas Bioroid entitled Engineering the Future and Infinite Frontiers recognize those taglines. Anyway, that's coming up after the closing credits. Thanks for listening. See you next week.
Engineering the Future A world leader in Android design and manufacture, Haas Bioroid is one of the most powerful and well-known corporations in the world. Its Bioroids are a modern feat of engineering and design that seamlessly blends man and machine. In the early days, Haas Industry was a robotics, cybernetics, and heavy manufacturing concern based in Europe. When the Rossum Group made its first breakthroughs on what would one day become the technology for neural channeling, Haas Industry was quick to snap it up. Following this acquisition, the company achieved amazing leaps in computational neuroscience technology that allowed for the creation of the first androids. With the launch of its flagship product, Bioroids, the company rebranded itself as Haas Bioroid. The first Bioroids to step off the production line were primitive compared to those manufactured today. But Haas Bioroid never stopped innovating. No firm has managed to replicate HB's proprietary brain taping and neural channeling techniques to produce a competing Bioroid product. As businesses capitalize on the efficiency of androids, demand for high-quality and affordable labor solutions has skyrocketed. HB's economic and political clout have also risen exponentially. Its patented designs, bleeding-edge tech, and massive production infrastructure allows it to negotiate the most lucrative contracts. Whether it is a legion of garbage collection and disposal models for a city government, a sophisticated personal secretary for an international head of state, or simply a loyal housekeeper and companion for a lonely billionaire, Haas Bioroid can mass-produce or custom-tailor Bioroids to suit any need or budget, all while turning a profit. Under the ruthless leadership of director Cynthia Haas, HB aggressively competes with rival corps by purchasing controlling shares in smaller businesses and directing their research in HB's favor. Rumors circulate of kidnapped CEOs who are rescued by Prysec teams once certain business negotiations are complete. Haas Bioroid's success has been seen by many corporations as a threat. Genteki directly competes with HB as the provider of the other half of the labor solutions market. Tales of corporate sabotage, espionage, and wet work run in the scream sheets with regularity despite the efforts of both corporations' PR departments. The fight over new technologies has inflamed tensions and few believe Haas Bioroid will let its rivals hold the upper hand for long. Infinite Frontiers Bioroids have become a permanent fixture in our society. They can be found working and existing, some might even say living, across every industry, in every major city, in every nation, on every world, 
inhabited by human beings. Introduced some 20 years ago, thanks to the breakthrough work on neural channeling, the bioroid swiftly grabbed the public's attention. Here was a thinking, rational machine, a true AI housed in a robotic body. Almost immediately, opinion on bioroids divided sharply. Some people feared and mistrusted them. Others embraced this stunning advancement of human achievement. And a third group felt humanity had finally gone too far. As bioroids became increasingly prevalent, those opinions crystallized into distinct social and political groups, each determined to prove the others wrong, often by violent and destructive means. So far, the bioroid has endured and become one of the single most recognizable features of modern life. Modern bioroids still follow the same basic template as their early forebears a complex optical network simulating a human connectome is linked to a more standard quantum computer system. Together, they form the bioroid's brain and allow it to think and learn in a fashion very similar to a human. A combination titanium polycarbonate chassis houses the brain, forming the core of the bioroid. Most often these chassis take a humanoid shape, Although models of differing physiques do exist, these are mostly designed for use in extreme environments or for specific tasks where only two arms or legs might be a detriment. In recent years, bioroid designers have begun experimenting with increasingly human-seeming bioroids, such as the Adonis and Eve models. But most bioroids avoid the so-called uncanny valley effect by not trying to seem too human in the first place. HB's engineers implemented a number of features to give bioroids a robotic feel, the most notable of which are the gaps in the synth skin that expose the metal beneath. Such design considerations allow humans to interact with bioroids without feeling like they are in the presence of anything other than a machine. There are hundreds of unique bioroid models, each of which is custom-designed to fulfill one or more functions. Some bioroid models were developed to perform menial and manual labor, to act as chauffeurs and serve as bodyguards. Others excel in high-risk fields where human life would otherwise be in danger, such as the Steger miners or Rex search and rescue models. There are even bioroid models that fill roles requiring skilled laborers or advanced education, such as the Alex model of investors and financiers. Even more traditionally biological professionals, such as those in the oldest profession, can be replaced by bioroids, as the Adonis and Eve models prove. With recent advancements in brain mapping, increasingly sophisticated models are entering the market, including the prototypes Floyd 2X3A7C and Drake 3GI2RC assigned to the New Angeles Police Department. 
NBN has commissioned specialized Actroid models, which have appeared in award-winning films and the hit show Friendship Upgraded. As this surge continues, many experts are asking how long will it be before the first Bioroid politicians or CEOs appear? It is a question that many are unable to answer without some trepidation. It was not when the Bioroid first opened its eyes that we knew. It was when it looked upon us with recognition. Ernst Brauer, Haas Industry.